listening to Table Talk Radio Live. A debate. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The phone number for tonight's broadcast is 1-800-385-SOLON. 1-800-385-SOLON. And now, here's your host, Evan Giglon. It's really the main question, isn't it? Did Jesus rise from the dead? It's that one event that, if disproven, would debunk the entire religion of Christianity. 1 Corinthians says, If Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith is worthless, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So it is really the central question of all time, did Jesus rise from the dead? Greetings and welcome for this special presentation of Table Talk Radio, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? We are, welcoming, we are coming to you this live Sunday, Sunday night, May 15th. If you have a question for one of our presenters, you can call in in the second hour of the program to ask your question live. Or if you'd prefer, you can call in the first hour to pre-record your question on our voicemail system. The, 1-800, the, the number is 1-800-385-SOLA. 1-800-385-7652. And now let's meet the presenters of tonight's debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Represent, representing the affirmative is the chairman of Systematic and Biblical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's the editor of the journal Concordia Theological Quarterly, a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and Institute for Biblical Research, the Alliance of Confessional Evangelicals, and the Christianity Today Institute, for which periodical he serves as a research scholar. He's author of many books, including Discourses in Matthew, The Sermon on the Mount, James, the Apostle of Faith, and What Do You Think of Jesus? Welcome, Dr. David Scare. Uh, thank you, Evan, and uh, good evening to you, and uh, good evening to you, Dr. Price. Mm, thank you. Dr. Price is the professor of Theology and Scriptural Studies at Coleman Theological Seminary, a fellow for the Jesus Seminar and the Committee for the Scientific Examination of Religion and for the Center of Inquiry Institute. He is a founder and editor of the Theological, the, excuse me, the, the Journal of Higher Criticism, author of many books, including Secret Scrolls, Revelations from the Lost Gospel Novels, The Case Against the Case for Christ, and The Reason-Driven Life. Known as the Bible Geek, he also hosts the internet podcast Point of Inquiry. Welcome, Dr. Robert Price. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, we'll start off with 10-minute opening statements, beginning with Dr. Scare. Dr. Scare, 10-minute opening statement whenever you're ready. Uh, thank you, Evan. Outcomes of debates dealing with past events and their causes are often not that crucial or may be of interest only to professional historians. For example, with the first European travelers to North America, Vikings or Irish monks. Determining causes is another matter. Was the Civil War fought because of slavery or over civil rights? One event can have multiple causes. The resurrection of Jesus is another matter, simply because any number of issues, including who God is and how we know him, or whether he exists at all, depend on it. Tonight, the debate is about whether the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth took place in our history. This question is dependent on a prior issue of whether he really ever existed 
at least in some way, as knowledge of him has come down to him. The historical character of the resurrection has existential dimensions. If the word existential has to do with existence in this life and the next life, if indeed there is one. Though the resurrection of Jesus has religious implications, the question is whether a particular man known in his time and afterwards as Jesus of Nazareth, who was reputed to be the son of Mary and Joseph, returned to life after being put to death by crucifixion. Was this man really dead and did he come back to life? While the resurrection was more than a resuscitation of a dead body, it was at least this. The claim from this side of the table is that, a flesh and, that there is a flesh and blood continuity, and not just a continuity of influence in memory between the man who was crucified and the one who was raised from the dead. The person that the church came to worship as Christ, the Son of God, was the same man who was sentenced to death by crucifixion by order of a governor appointed by a Roman emperor. His trial and death sentence may have been a travesty of justice, but it was conducted in Jewish and Roman courts with an arrest by the palace police. Witnesses were called to provide incriminating evidence. A judge or judges and concluding in a legally administered execution. When it was determined he was really dead, the governor spared his corpse from anonymity in a common grave typically reserved for felons by acceding to the request of a Jewish official to give him a final resting place in a tomb that he had reserved for himself. None of this was done in secret. In all of these actions, his followers, opponents, Government officials and military personnel were involved from the time of his rest to his burial, the placing of additional military personnel at his tomb on the day after the death and on the day on which he assumably rose from the tomb. Lynch mob actions were involved in his trial and execution, but this was not a lynch mob trial and execution. All this had the appearance of a legal process. All this makes the misidentification of the corpse of Jesus with another dead man or a clandestine disposal of the corpse improbable. Jerusalem had no river for disposing bodies of those who did not follow the party line. Beyond dispute, or it should be, is that a man by the name of Jesus found a place first in the lives of those who knew him, and then through them he had an influence on successive generations including those not committed to his cause. Jesus has been the center of a hate-love relationship since some time in the first century. Either he said and did things that annoyed some people or awoke admiration of others, or someone else created this kind of person. But the issue tonight is to do what is to do precisely with a dead body coming back to life and not his leg legacy. Paraphrasing, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, and to yes, Virginia, Jesus lives, and he lives in his, our hearts, does not do justice to what is meant by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It does, matter, it does not matter whether he lives in my heart or anyone else's heart, but whether a corpse in which the cells from his head to his feet ceased to function and bring oxygen to the lungs came back to life. In Christian theology, Jesus' resurrection transcends space and time, but it begins and is nothing less than an event that happened in space and time. Like his death by crucifixion, 
His resurrection can be tied down to a specific place and day. It was on the day after the day he was put to death. Without this conviction that the resurrection belongs to our space and calendar, as was his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, all that presents itself as Christian, including its message, faith, theology, and institution, would lose most or all of its value and could be discarded without significant loss to humankind. St. Paul more or less said the same thing when he argued that if Christ be not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It is tempting to say that a reconstituted Christianity without the resurrection would hardly resemble what is traditionally understood as Christianity, at least as expressed in the Apostles or Nicene creeds. And it could be predicted that such a reconstituted Christianity would eventually disappear. Perhaps so. But some scholars who have proved to themselves that there is a good reason not to believe in Jesus' resurrection, nevertheless to nevertheless continue to include themselves as members of recognized Christian communities. They are churchgoers. Sooner or later, the discrepancy, at least for some, between their doubts about Jesus and participation in a church that recognizes him as the center of its devotion will eventually come to a parting of the ways. This is not a matter of prediction. 18th century rationalism offered a Christianity without miracles, including Jesus' resurrection, and the church pews emptied out. Thomas Jefferson had the self-confidence to dismantle the, an English translation of the Bible to remove the embarrassment of miracles. In the place of Christianity that demanded the lives, even the deaths of his followers, he substituted a benign deism that might have appealed to the reason but did not require the commitment of the older religion. Reason set the boundaries of what could be reasonably believed in the Bible, but this was not pure reason as an abstract mental process, but reason was what one encountered, what could be gleaned from one's previous experiences. What could not be placed within the boundaries of individual or corporate experience was seen to be highly improbable, close to the point of impossibility. The virgin birth, as are the miracles of Jesus, can be pivotal points in concluding that Jesus and God and man, but these are beyond the range of historical investigation, at least at the in the sense that the resurrection is. Without the resurrection of Jesus, his deeds and words have no claim on reality, at least the reality in which we now live. Christianity can no longer claim to be God's unique revelation, and so religions or no religions at all become acceptable options. After this discussion, neither of us or those who listen, listen will be left unchallenged in how we regard our lives and, and, and their value. Should some be or remain convinced that Jesus did not rise from the dead, there would be no reason for each of those who think this way to be Christian except for the sake of nostalgia, something like keeping a Sunday school faith in place. If nostalgia for Jesus does not make him worthy of an occasional Sunday visit to the local church, then we have deprived ourselves of pursuing goals that Jesus said are secondary or really meaningless. In choosing Jesus and not mammon, that is, wealth and its ple the pleasures it brings, we took the wrong fork in the road. More simply put, we might have enjoyed more of the pleasures of this world than we have, or at least we could have, even if we had to do this at the expense of others. 
Even without Jesus, we know that accumulated wealth loses its value either by rust, embezzlement, or fraud, and the vigor of youth is irretrievably lost. Dr. Scare, one minute. Any thought of a life after death becomes uncertain, but the upside is that a conscious life gives way to the nothingness of unconscious existence. In any event, we will have, we will have put our money on the wrong horse. On the other side of the coin those, coin, those who do not find the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus have to face, face the possibility that it actually happened. Minimally, this would require an immediate evaluation of what Jesus said, especially of himself. This question, like, like others, lies between probability and improbability and cannot ultimately be answered, at least in this life. All right. Thank you, Dr. Scare. If you have a question or a comment for for Dr. Scare, you can call in and pre-record your question now. That number is 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652, and we'll play your question in the second hour of the program. It's now time for Dr. Price with your 10-minute opening statement. Dr. Price. Thanks. Should we believe the gospel Easter stories or reports of fact? There is simply no reason to accept at face value anything, much less everything, that some ancient narrative tells us. If we're going to believe in the resurrection simply because an ancient text narrates it, we might as well believe the story of Odysseus and the Cyclops. Why not? And this has nothing to do with whether there is a God or whether there can be miracles. Suppose there are real miracles. Does that mean every story of a miracle must be true? We often hear that we ought to believe the resurrection occurred because there is no other way to explain how Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was found empty by the women disciples when they arrived on Easter morning, etc. It couldn't have been the wrong tomb because of so-and-so. The disciples couldn't have stolen the corpse because of this and that. But this is all wrong-headed. To try to prove the punchline of the Easter story, namely the resurrection, from the preparatory steps written to lead the reader up to it is a sleight-of-hand trick. It is like trying to prove the Emerald City is real, because otherwise, where would the yellow brick road lead? Today's resurrection apologetics are really yesterday's. They made sense in the 17th century context of debate between orthodox apologists and the now extinct tribe of liberal Protestant rationalists. These were the theological oddballs who believed the Bible was inerrant, but that God carefully kept to Newtonian natural laws and never suspended them to work miracles, whether a miracle of resurrection or of biblical inspiration. This meant believing that Jesus was crucified and believing that he was seen alive again afterwards. But how to get from point A to point B? The infamous swoon theory. He must not have died. He was taken down alive and revived in the tomb from which he emerged days later. This was the way the rationalists defended the Easter story. It was just a question of underlying causation. They said no miracle was involved. Their orthodox opponents claimed there was. Both could take the literal accuracy of the story for granted. It was like Calvinists and Arminians, both biblicists, appealing to their shared infallible text as they debated predestination. 
as I say, rationalists weren't historical critics, though they did not believe in a miraculous inspiration of a written text. They assumed the text was accurate. Thus, they required some non-miraculous excuse for automatically taking the accuracy of the text for granted, even if it were just as contrived as the swoon theory. So, for miraculous inerrancy, they substituted the arbitrary claim of eyewitness authorship of the whole Bible. They affirmed eyewitness authorship merely because they needed to, just like today's apologists. But historians do not approach any text or story with such rosy lenses. They tentatively accept as true only those accounts which can be independently corroborated. Then what about the Easter narratives? Mark's, the first one, contains no appearances. It does not merely lack them, but actually discounts them, explaining why the disciples, perhaps despite popular rumor, had not gone to Galilee and seen the risen Savior. They should have, all right, but Mary Magdalene and the others pointedly disobeyed the orders of the young man at the tomb who instructed them to go there. We're not left in doubt whether they carried out their mission. Mark says they did not. Quote, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, end of quote. Matthew, Luke, and John all follow up uh, Mark, uh, they all follow Mark up to the angel's charge to the women, then add various resurrection appearances. Apologists never notice that Matthew, Luke, and John are not merely picking up where Mark left off. No, they are only able to supplement Mark's story by cutting off Mark's original ending and substituting something diametrically opposed. Er, uh, the uh, women did, after all, carry out the order. They uh, did tell the disciples to meet him, and the disciples did meet him. For good measure, Matthew and John have the women at the tomb see Jesus, too. Well, they have reversed Mark's ending, not just added on to it. Therefore, these appearance stories must be fictions, just as if we were to read stories based on the notion that, no, Hitler won the war after all. But even if one were inclined to take the gospel Easter stories as basically sound up till the resurrection appearances, these very texts introduce two viable alternative explanations. One, the tomb was found empty because the body, having been only stashed there for the moment since the Sabbath was coming on, those who buried him returned and took the body away before the women got there, and no one knew where to tell them to look. Two, people who claimed they had seen the risen Jesus had actually seen somebody else, and only later inferred it must have been Jesus, though admittedly he did not look like Jesus, and he didn't actually say he was Jesus, come to think of it. This happens in Luke 24 with the Emmaus disciples, in John 21 with the disciples on the lake of Tiberias, and in the long ending of Mark. Such an admission totally vitiates the credibility of the resurrection story. It would have been just like Mark 6:14 and 8:27 through 28, where John the Baptist's disciples were seeing a still living Jesus, but jumped to the conclusion that they were seeing a risen Baptist. Imagine trying to identify a criminal this way in court. 
It might seem fanciful to raise these two possibilities, except that they are raised by the texts themselves, where they seem to remain as an echo of a guilty conscience. Finally, suppose for the sake of argument that we were stuck with a stubbornly factual empty tomb, which we are not, would we be justified in concluding the only explanation was a miraculous resurrection? No, we would not. That would be like saying that the only way to explain the building of the pyramids was space aliens with tractor beams. We'd only be trying to answer one mystery by an even bigger mystery, which is no explanation at all. We would just have to leave it an open question. That is, if there were a problem there, which is not. I realize that because of the larger issues involved, it is very hard, very nearly impossible, for Christian believers to entertain the possibility that the resurrection did not happen or even that in any case history cannot confirm the resurrection. One might admit it cannot be proven, as some do, and continue to affirm the resurrection by faith alone, that is to say, by sheer willpower. Do that if you feel you have to, but at least do not let your will to believe cause you to make false claims about what history does or does not prove. All right. Thank you, Dr. Price. Uh, if you have a comment or a response for Dr. Price and that opening statement, you can call 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-SOLA. After this commercial break, we'll have an opening statement or, or a, a opening argument with Dr. Price, uh, or the first argument for, for Dr. Price, and then we'll get Dr. Scare's 10-minute uh, rebuttal following that. Uh, call in now, 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-SOLA, to record your question on our voicemail system, and we'll play those in the second hour of the program. Also, check out our website. We have a number of things for you to check out on our website. Uh, we have many articles uh, that we have written, both Pastor Wolfman and I have written, and you can check them out on tabletalkradio.org, a number of them concerning baptism, uh, a chronology of the Easter account, and many others. We'll be right back on Table Talk Radio. For the first time, Christians all over the world are exploring and enjoying the writings of Martin Luther. How are they doing that? through the new and easy-to-read translations of the great reformer's works by Lutheran Press. Until now, the works of Luther have been buried in expensive, collected works editions, or been accessible only in wooden, drawn-out translations. In contrast, Lutheran Press translations are easy-to-read, dynamic and concise, addressing present-day issues facing the Church. They're even accompanied by helpful study questions. Use them for personal study, small group settings, or larger Bible classes. Best of all, they're extremely affordable. If money is an issue, Lutheran Press books are still available. Download them for free at Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D, dot com, slash Lutheran Press. For previews of all Lutheran Press books, and to order, simply go to lutheranpress.com. Lutheran Press, publishing and promoting the theology of Martin Luther. I'm selling you something. (laughs) 
I know you don't believe it, but it's true. I am. I, I'm trying to sell you or your congregation. If you're not a pastor, if you could give this information to your pastor, I'd really appreciate it. An electronic baptismal certificate. It's an electronic, customized for your church certificate that prints out on an 11 by 17 page. It's an old-fashioned looking, but technologically up-to-date certificate with woodcut images, the four catechism baptismal verses, uh, and a place to input electronically uh, baptismal information, and it's available for $35 per congregation, and you can print as many as you want until the Lord Jesus returns. Uh, The way to see this certificate and get input to me for it or order it is to go to wolfsoncreative.com, and you can click on the certificate there and and see it. You can even print a sample to see if you can print it out, and order information is all there as well. So, again, it's wolfsoncreative.com. That's a customizable electronic baptismal certificates for your congregation. Thanks for your time, and see, I am trying to sell you something, and I hope you'll buy it. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, a special presentation for you tonight, this Sunday evening, May 15th, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, a debate between Dr. Robert Price and Dr. David Scare. We've had a 10-minute opening statement from both sides, and now we have uh, Dr. Price, an argument uh, for 10 minutes. Here you go, 10 minutes with a, another argument. Well, um, I don't know that it'll take 10 minutes. Let me just observe that uh, that uh, Dr. Scare's opening statement seems to attest uh, what I'm talking about with the assumption that we ought to take the narrative seriously just because the narrative says so when the two two points there the idea that uh, the guards at the tomb in matthew are simply to be taken for granted as historical because the one gospel says so whereas it any historian would uh, would say well wait a minute if this happened can it possibly be explained why other gospel writers do not mention it that's a pretty juicy fact if fact it was and and so great doubt seems to come upon it, not because it's impossible, posting guards, you know, that, that doesn't uh, violate anybody's worldview, it's just uh, kind of a practical question about literary and historical criticism. Similarly, the, the, thing, the claims Jesus supposedly made for himself, I just don't think we can honestly put that down like a, a revealing a hand of cards at the poker table, you know, here it is, royal flush, I win, because it's by no means clear ever since uh, D.F. Strauss that, uh, that uh, John even means that Jesus said all of these things. Seems to me much more likely he's trying to say this is the deeper truth that the paraclete would bring, and he's cast it in narrative form. But as long as these things are even viable topics of debate, a cloud rests over them so that they cannot simply be set forth as clinching evidence. And I say again, just because uh, one part of the story says something that would back up what another part of the story says, neither one of them verify the story in any way, and there is no other verification. So I think it ultimately boils down to simply the will to believe, and that oddly enough, that is a kind of nostalgia theology. I thoroughly agree that a lot of people with liberal-type theological views are just going to church for the nostalgia of it. Uh, Whether they should or shouldn't, I don't know, but I think that's what this is. People are so nostalgic about the old-time faith 
that uh, nothing can count against it, and out of a sense of loyalty to it, they not only believe it implicitly, but seem to think everybody else should as a matter of course, and I just don't see the need for that. Thank you, Dr. Price. We'll now uh, listen to Dr. Scare for a 10-minute rebuttal uh, of Dr. Price's argument there. Uh, now is the time for the rebuttal of, the, of his argument. Well, yes, uh, I am not too, uh, Dr. Price, I'm not too weepy-eyed or nostalgic about all of this. I, uh, I don't place myself as an evangelical, and I put this entirely outside of the realm of faith, and in no way uh, is any argument based upon um, the infallibility, the inerrancy, or the inspiration of the scriptures. And I'm not going to a prayer meeting after this is all over to boost up my faith. That's, that would be completely out of character for me if any of my uh, friends are, are listening uh, to this discussion. And uh, so you take the matter of the guards as, as, um, not, being, as not being verifiable. Well, uh, you got this situation, and that is if you have four gospel accounts, um, the one thing that strikes me about the four gospel accounts of how disparate they are, uh, except uh, with the uh, you do have a, a, a women or women going there, you do have a, a, the discovery of an empty tomb, and they are not even agreed about the figures which are um, uh, which are associated with the tomb, which in my estimation points to the veracity of the account, uh, simply because. Um, if this was going to uh, actually be something which is going to be sold on the street, there should have been someone should have cleaned up the biblical texts uh, before they did that. Now, what I, I, you mentioned the guards specifically, and I find that to be a very uh, intriguing item, and it's an intriguing item in th at this point of view. And Matthew is the only one to do that, and that is I would see a great uh, I would see a connection if we work with the idea that Matthew is working with sources, and that is I would put together a common source uh, that Jesus meets with the high priest and receives the 30 pieces of silver, and then you have that unusual pericope of the death of Judas in which you have... Um, uh, he first meets again... By, by the way, the word... he. Uh, Chief priest is really an amazing translation because I have not found the difference between how one translates the word for high priest and chief priest any differently. He actually might have been meeting with the high priests, the people who were conducting the trial, and he was speaking with the chief of staff and not simply the sergeants. And you have the 30 pieces of silver, which are then used to buy the... Um, uh, the ground of burial, the potter's field, or the field of blood. Very interesting, the field of blood, uh, thus reflecting the, how um, how Jesus was betrayed by blood money. And then it's we come to the guard at the tomb. Now, that, that guard appears um, in uh, on Saturday between Good Friday and the resurrection. And again, it's the high priests and the Pharisees who ask... Uh, Pilate for a guard. Now, is this within the realm of probability or improbability? Uh, even though there is no mention of in the other Gospels, can it be dismissed? Um, the, the mention of the guard at the resurrection is not the first time that it's mentioned. 
it's 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 mentioned here on on this Saturday, in which to me looks like an absolutely ordinary situation, uh, not being miraculous at all, that the guard that the guards uh, are requested uh, that the authorities the Jewish authorities ask that the guard be put there for three days because they have understood the message of Jesus. Now, what happens? In the resurrection narrative, and that's in Matthew 28, 11 to 15, is again, we have the guards. Again, we have the Jewish authorities. And we also, again, have the business of money. Now, the translation says they took the money. Um, the Greek is a little bit more precise. It says they took the silver. So at least we, at, at this point, we have built up uh, we have begun to build up a credible story uh, that the um, uh, that there were guards at the tomb because the, the Jewish authorities are involved in each one of these steps and and this is not an unusual thing it's not a mirac it is not a miraculous thing now now you raise the question of just because it is uh, testified in one gospel does it therefore have any less veracity well I think when you look at these documents, they have to be looked at historically, but they don't have to be looked at just historically. And that is the writers, as all writers do, they have a certain purpose in mind. And um, Matthew has a strong polemic against the Jewish community. He says one thing, but he sometimes has exactly the opposite meaning. It will be the uh, one of the themes of the Gospels that the Gentiles are going to be saved uh, the Jewish authorities are looked upon as the opponents as the opponents of Jesus. Now, why isn't this found in Luke and Mark? Well, uh, maybe uh, Luke wants to put pours oil on troubled water, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Mark, if if Mark is writing, at a, if Mark is not writing in in the in the uh, environment of Jerusalem. Um, then why should he bring up some nasty business that has already passed out of the consciousness of the people? Because the uh, this anti the uh, antagonism between Jesus and his opponents in Palestine or in Judea, th there's no reason to transfer that animosity outside of outside of Jerusalem and outside of Judea. And uh, the answer to these problems of how one handles the resurrection accounts and their, and their alleged discrepancies, and they are different, absolutely. You can use the word discrepancies. can be explained by how the, um, about, how the, about how the writers, what is the purpose of the writers. And then you bring up the other point, by the way, and that is um, were the uh, claims that are attributed to Jesus, what did he really say them? Well, this would uh, this almost necessitates that the Gospels come at a very late, at a late date. I won't say a very late date. I mean, Matthew comes with a 80 to 85. Some put it at 100. Mark, 65, 72, something like that. Luke, somewhere in between 80, 85. Anybody's guess is good as anybody else's guess. Um, well, was there enough time? Uh, it, it, was that enough time? Uh, 30 or 40 years uh, to develop, to let people attribute things to this Jewish rabbi, which he really didn't say. Uh, 
And what would happen, by the way, what would happen then if the um, gospel accounts really were early than the year 70? That's one of the points that has to be reevaluated in New Testament uh, research of, plating, of, of making the fall of Jerusalem uh, the uh, constituting date for the uh, placing uh, for the writing of the Gospels. If Paul could come up with some decent stuff around the year 45 to 50 to 55, is it really totally impossible that uh, someone could have written a gospel at least by that time, if not earlier? All right. Thank you, Dr. Scare. Uh, we're going to go to a commercial break and then uh, come back and hear a uh, argument uh, by Dr. Scare to uh, get a rebuttal from Dr. Price. So don't go away. More Table Talk Radio right after this commercial break. Uh, again, call in 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652 is the number. And you can pose a question to either Dr. Scare or Dr. Price. Uh, and, and we'll record that on our voicemail system and play it in the second hour of the program. And Dr. Scare and Dr. Price will both uh, get a chance to react to your questions specifically. Uh, right back on Table Talk Radio, again, right after this, we're going to hear an argument by Dr. Scare and then a rebuttal from Dr. Price. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back right after this. For Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Can you believe this parable? The parable of the sinner and the Pharisee? They both come up to the temple to pray, and one goes home justified, the other doesn't. The one that goes home justified is not the man who's good, not the man who studies his Bible every day and prays three times a day regularly, not the man who's dressed nice, who has it all going for him, who has lots of friends, who's well-liked in the community. Not It's not the man who you want to be who goes home justified. It's the man you don't want to be. It's the sinner, the tax collector, the low-life criminal. The man who you wouldn't let date your daughter, the man who you wouldn't let in your house, that's the one that gets to heaven. You see, we govern things by works, by doing good, by being right and holy before each other, but God is totally different. He judges things based not on our works. If he did, who would be good enough? Who would be holy enough? Nobody. Not on our works, but on Christ Jesus who does all for us. So this parable, the parable of the of the sinner and the Pharisee, teaches us to despair of ourselves, of our own attempts at self-righteousness, of all of our sense of being good enough or holy enough for God, to despair of these things, to let all of these things go, to die to these things, to beat at our chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because it's for sinners that Christ came, it's for sinners that Christ died, and it's for sinners like you and me. Christ has the promise of forgiveness, justification, of eternal life. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org.
Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, a debate. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If you're hearing this broadcast for the first time, I want to tell you about our regular broadcast of Table Talk Radio. At tabletalkradio.org, we have a weekly podcast, uh, of a, a theological game show, we call it. And, and you can listen to the podcast on our website, tabletalkradio.org, where we play various theological games uh, and, and a, a, a unique approach to Christian talk radio. Again, tabletalkradio.org is the address, and click on the podcast tab at the top of the screen. It's now time to go to Dr. Scare for an argument uh, that Dr. Price will rebuttal uh, here in a moment. So, Dr. Scare, 10 minutes. We're in a bind in this way. Testing the integrity of the reports of Jesus' resurrection assumes that a particular man lived and that his mortal remains was placed in a tomb. Here we find ourselves arguing in our circle because his resurrection is the best evidence that he lived. Had he not been resurrected, no memory of him would have likely survived, and if it had, Rabbi Jesus ben Joseph would have been inconsequential if indeed this Jesus was a rabbi at all. Past events, including those that comprise the resurrection of Jesus, are incapable of perfect reconstruction. Even when all the pieces are available, we might not be sure of how to place them together, and their significance evolves only through time. In regard, to, in regard to past events, we are dealing with a sliding scale of probabilities with some tending to either virtual certainty on one side or virtual uncertainty on the other. The gospel accounts of the resurrections reflect this kind of evaluation. Those who confront the resurrection of Jesus in one way or another are in their own mind moving the event back and forth on the scale of probability and improbability. High marks of probability can be given for the ordinary things that Jesus did, like being born, walking, eating, dying, and even death by crucifixion. This happens to, has happened to other people. Moderately probable is that Jesus was a socially disruptive person. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He may have left his hands unwashed before eating, and he worked on the Sabbath. His disrupting the legal exchange of currency in the temple would be seen as a security risk, which would have made the headlines, but not the history books. Jesus attracted attention by actions which are probable. But what stirred the crowds were the improbable things he did, like raising the dead. Problematic is that the probability of his death by crucifixion and the improbability of his resurrection are placed by side by side in a document that is hardly more than a quarter century removed from the events of reports. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. Paul had not created this, this statement, but he got this formula, probably from the church in Jerusalem, and was not telling his readers something new, but only reminding them what they already heard and knew about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Probability and improbability came down hand-in-hand in, hand in church tradition. And Paul's task was to convince the Corinthians that their resurrection was, had to move to the same level of high probability and certainty as Christ. The most extensive accounts of the resurrection are the Gospels. They share a common narrative, and one or the other may be dependent on another or a common source. All options are possible, and no, no one knows for sure. 
The question is whether they reflect real events that happened in our time, or did they come from overactive imagination and literary geniuses who combined Old Testament stories and contemporary mythology to present an ordinary man as if he had supernatural origins and who after death by crucifixion came back to life. To put this option in bold outlines, certain persons created a religion to replace Judaism by taking the central place that Moses and David had in the Old Testament and giving it to a man who was, who was given the name of Jesus, whose personage was enhanced by myths of a virgin birth sometimes attributed to important political figures, and combining this with the myths of dying and rising gods that were associated with rivers. This religion, if this is the way it happened, was constructed to win the hearts of Jewish audiences and at the same time to gain converts among Greek-speaking Gentiles. All Gentiles were Greek-speaking, I suppose. This would give new meaning to Paul's words first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Should the Christian message of Jesus' resurrection prove to be this kind of a fiction, it would have to be admired as one of the most outstanding literary creations of all time. That all of this could have happened would would also have to be placed on the scale of probabilities. While for some such a literary creation would evoke admiration, others might place the construction of such a literary contraption close to the bottom of the scale of probabilities. If each of the four Gospels came up with a common theme by himself, this option is pushed closer to improbability. Only those who have dismissed the resurrection narrative as fiction can tell us whether they are ever haunted by the possibility that the events reported in the Gospels may be closer to the center on the scale of probabilities. Locating a document closer to the event it reports does not necessarily give it a greater degree of authenticity. But earlier documents are not as susceptible to exposure by accretions uh, that documents written long after the event has taken place. Proximity of a report to the event does not necessarily mean that it has correctly understood it. But distance from an event increases the possibility of infection by elaboration. Scholars have their reasons for recognizing Paul's epistles, especially 1 Corinthians, as the first record of Christ's resurrection, and that the Gospels are secondary with Mark first, followed by Luke and Matthew. Earlier sources for the Gospels are said to be the hypothetical document known as Q and earlier versions of Mark. Depending on how these hypothetical documents are constructed, They do not contain the resurrection appearance of Jesus, but existence of such sources is speculative, as is the reconstruction of their contents. The early church fathers relied heavily, already beginning in the year 100, on Matthew, only occasionally on Luke, and hardly, if at all, on Mark. For them, Matthew was the first gospel, and if we take their writings seriously, really the first gospel, only gospel. Matthew and the bulk of our New Testament was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70. The writer of Matthew writes if if there is actually a place called the field of blood. And he gives the impression that it can be visited by his readers. 
Now, if this really were not so, then his document would have been discredited because he would have been mentioning evidence that nobody could lay their hands on. On the scale of probability, the existence of the field of blood gets high marks. This provides support for the view that the land for the cemetery was bought by blood money, the kind of money Judas arranged for arranging the arrest and then death of Jesus. All this is well within the range of probability. People get paid for killing other people's enemies. So now we return to the and between crucified, died, and was buried, and the third day he rose again. Jesus died because someone paid money to arrange his arrest. Call it blood money. A burial following death also belongs, also also ranks well within the high scale of probabilities. The next piece in the puzzle is, where is the missing body? He is not here, forces the question, where is he? We should agree, he is not here. And the one answer that has floated around after he died is, he's risen from the dead. Then comes the kicker, just as he said he would. Of course, there are other answers, but those other answers are the reasons that we are here. All right, thank you, Dr. Scare. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to get Dr. Price's rebuttal. Uh, I do want to encourage you all to call in to 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652 to record your question. Uh, then at, uh, at the, in the second of the program, we'll take your calls live at that same phone number. But if you would like to record your question on our voicemail system for us to play in the second hour, the number is 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652. Seven six five two, and now we'll go to Dr. Price uh, for rebuttal of Dr. Scare's argument. Well, for one thing, it's a little bit difficult to respond in that we're obviously living in different universes in terms of critical questions. I think the uh, Gospels are all second-century works, and if we had the time, uh, I would explain it, and if you want to, uh, I will. Uh, but to me, the, these early dates are just a function of apologetics. Uh, there's no particular reason to date them that early, where I think there's plenty of internal clues of much later dating, but uh, apologists prefer the early date just because they think that would make the Gospels less susceptible to embellishment. In fact, it doesn't, so I think they're late dated, but that doesn't really matter to my point, because we can show uh, easily a number of cases where rabbis, messiahs, etc., even in our own day have had their uh, their uh, resumes padded by uh, worshipping starry-eyed uh, followers and it took no time at all uh, that uh, it doesn't it can be just weeks or days uh, and I, I deal with a lot of this stuff in some of my books like Beyond Born Again and uh, Incredible Shrinking Son of Man and so on but the uh, the idea of attestation and corroboration and why one gospel writer only has certain things it's it's odd that you're using this redactional uh, approach that a, a writer will emphasize the things that fit his agenda when we only know what the agenda is from the, what he emphasizes and why that couldn't be fiction in the case of the Matthew thing 
Matthew only has Jesus predict that he's going to rise from the dead, and that is in his elaboration of the uh, sign of Jonah statement. Uh, one for, he quotes two versions, one from Mark, one from Q, and uh, then he adds the thing to explain what the sign of Jonah was, that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so is the Son of Man going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the only time in the Gospels he ever ex- predicts a resurrection. Now, why is that in Matthew? Well, to pave the way for him, being the only one to have the Sanhedrin, know that there might be a hoax in the offering so that they go to Pilate, and he gives them the... the guards, and uh, then uh, he alone has them posted there, has them uh, quake with fear and faint dead away, and then this kind of keystone cops thing that they're paid to say that they were asleep as if they would have known what would have happened while they were asleep. It's all Matthean. None of it is in any other gospel, and you've got to ask, why is that? I mean, if this really happened, how could any Christian uh, not say, hey, get a load of this, the guy's tomb was guarded by Roman thugs, and he rose from the dead anyway. How, as Rymara said, how could this not be in every sermon in Acts? How come it only appears in, in this gospel that's known for embellishing the story with earthquakes and extra angels and so forth? Uh, plus, yet again, the uh, Akaldama, the field of blood thing, well, this is Matthew's view, but the book of Acts has a completely different account of why it's called the field of blood that doesn't involve uh, the money and uh, Judas being paid off, and why was he paid off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For him, Judas just uh, exploded, as uh, Papias says, uh, and uh, it was a bloody mess in this plot of land that he bought, not the Sanhedrin. So it's like we, we have different clashing versions, even of that, that can hardly be harmonized. Uh, and then this stuff, well, if he was uh, put to death and put in a tomb and the tomb was empty, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Why should we believe that just because ancient narratives say so? Why not believe in the Cyclops? Uh, and there's just no reason to, and that's why I think that uh, Dr. Scare's argument does silently presuppose the inerrancy of Scripture. Must we always give the doubt to, to, to this story, when, when, as he himself points out, there are huge areas of uncertainty and improbability. Why, why convert uh, agnosticism into theism? Why not leave it with saying, you know, there's no way to know this, which is what I think. I don't have any dogma that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead or anything like that. Uh, but uh, I'm willing to say that we cannot know. This is not the only likely answer. And I don't know why he moves beyond that except in the interests of faith. Uh, speaking of faith, the 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11 thing, the list of appearances, this is not evidence for anything. This is in form a creed. It's a statement of faith, not evidence for faith. And uh, again, the dates, I, I go with scholars that, uh, as, as I've argued in detail more than once, see this section as an interpolation into 1 Corinthians, among many others. Anyhow, and as long as that's even a viable argument, one cannot just produce these the proof texts as if they were you know, Trump cards. And the whole thing is filled, sadly, with slippery probabilities and improbabilities. One last thing. Uh, Dr. Scare's comprehensive summary of the theory that uh, the Christian story is based on mythic dying and rising gods, 
immortalized heroes and emperors, uh, Old Testament citations rewritten. That is pretty much what I think happened. And, and to me, since this was happening in other uh, contemporary mystery religions and Jewish offshoots, such as Sabazianism uh, uh, and syncretistic mixing movements, it seems to me the most natural thing in the world. There are s synagogues that back then in Palestine that have mosaics of Hercules and Zeus on the wall. They're Jewish sarcophagi that have the Torah and the wheel of the resurrected Attis. I mean, it was a time of syncretism, and it just is, is not in the least improbable that, that this could have happened. I, however, do not say I am sure that it did. My point is there's, there are too many possibilities, and one has no right through historical reasoning to say, well, oh, yeah, Jesus existed, he did and said everything the gospel said, and, uh, and he rose from the dead, and that, that's it. Uh, <laughs> that just seems completely arbitrary. We, we could be arguing, we could have a Mithraist in here arguing, yeah, Mithras really slew that bull, and the axis of the universe changed, and salvation was wrought, and so on. I mean, they could be doing the same thing with a lot of the same stories, but uh, that wouldn't uh, really give us any probability uh, either. So I just find uh, that, you, well, one last thing, you're, you're arguing for verisimilitude as if it were truth. I don't deny that we have a, a very skillful narrative or several narratives here, but they're not filled with absurdities. I don't claim that. But the fact that they, they make sense as stories, well, you know, Philip Marlowe detective stories do too, but that doesn't mean they happened. Uh, and, and the novel writing was well established by this time already in the 6th in the, uh, century B.C., though it reached its zenith in New Testament times. So I just see no reason one ought to believe except by uh, the desire to believe. Thank you, Dr. Price. All right, uh, after this break, it's time for your calls, and you can do so 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652, and you can pose your question to either Dr. Scare or Dr. Price, and each side will have a one-minute uh, time to respond to, to every call. So uh, call in now, 1-800-385-SOLA. 1-800-385-7652. Before we go to break, I do want to tell you about our table scraps that are on our website at tabletalkradio.org. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, uh, Table Talk Radio, we have table scraps, uh, which are additional interviews that, that we have uh, interviewing various pastors and professors on, on various topics, and they're all archived for your listening enjoyment on tabletalkradio.org. Also, have you ever needed to uh, critique a praise song? I know that uh, it's hard to, to grapple with, with that project because it's hard to get your arms around the thing. Uh, how is it that we can analyze that a, a praise song is, is good or bad? Well, at Table Talk Radio, we have what we like to affectionately call the praise song cruncher. And that's on our website, tabletalkradio.org, under the articles tab. Uh, and there's a five-question diagnostic to uh, to ask the question, is this a, a praise song that is acceptable for Christian worship? It's called the Praise Song Cruncher. We do it regularly on our program, tabletalkradio.org. Again, you can go to the podcast page of our website to analyze
to, to, to listen to our, our podcast to see how it is that we approach the Praise Song Cruncher. All right, we're going to go to a commercial break, and then we're going to hit your comments and questions uh, to Dr. Scare and Dr. Price, and they will each get a chance to respond to your questions. The number is 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652. Don't go away. We'll be right back right after this break on Table Talk Radio. 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. It's Sunday night, May 15th. We'll be right back right after this commercial break. The phone lines are now open. Call now. 1-800-385-SOLA. 1-800-385-SOLA. For the first time, Christians all over the world are exploring and enjoying the writings of Martin Luther. How are they doing that? Through the new and easy-to-read translations of the great reformers' works by Lutheran Press. Until now, the works of Luther have been buried in expensive, collected works editions or been accessible only in wooden, drawn-out translations. In contrast, Lutheran Press translations are easy to read, dynamic and concise, addressing present-day issues facing the Church. They're even accompanied by helpful study questions. Use them for personal study, small group settings, or larger Bible classes. Best of all, they're extremely affordable. If money is an issue, Lutheran Press books are still available. Download them for free at Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D, dot com, slash Lutheran Press. For previews of all Lutheran Press books, and to order, simply go to lutheranpress.com. Lutheran Press, publishing and promoting the theology of Martin Luther. Michaelis, a young peasant, finds himself in the midst of a bleak and bloody war. He must rise up to become the Lumen Kingdom's greatest hero. Ill-practiced traditions, time, nature, and a ruthless enemy hell-bent on annihilating his people stand in his way. The Gift and the Defender by T. Emmett Bramwell T. Emmett Bramwell's debut novel is an allegorical expression of history's central event. This coming-of-age adventure is soaked in inklingesque tones of fantasy and rubbed dry with the abrasive towel of reality. Follow the happenings of Michaelis and Adam Malloy, two unique yet similar young men, as they face the out-of-this-world challenges set before them and navigate the consequences of their actions. Immerse yourself in the Lumen Legends series of novels, starting with book one. Available in print and ebook editions at tmbramwell.com. And now it's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. The law is intent on killing us. And if you need proof of that, you just have to read the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says something like this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable of hellfire. You see, that law that just stands there by itself, you shall not murder, could perhaps be keepable, doable. I could say that I haven't murdered anyone today because I haven't taken an ice pick to anyone's back or something like this. But when Jesus takes the law, he unfolds the fullness of it. He doesn't dull it. He makes it sharp so that this law cuts, so that when we see Jesus' definition of murder, 
we know that we have broken it and that this law condemns us. He does the same thing with the law against adultery. If you even look with lust that you've committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus unfolds the spiritual use of the law, which is to bring us death, to show us that we've all broken the law. And what we deserve because of our breaking the law is God's wrath and his punishment. Then we are ready for Jesus' cross. Because there he bears the wrath and punishment that we deserve because of our sin. There he takes it on ourselves. We murderous, adulterous, lying, blasphemous thieves. We who deserve God's wrath. Instead, Jesus gets it and we get his love, his smile, his forgiveness, his grace, his life, his hope. We get all of these things. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus died for us. So praise God that through the law we're killed and through the gospel we're made alive. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. Our guests are now taking your questions. Call in now. 1 800 385-SOLA 1-800-385-SOLA Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, a debate Did Jesus Rise from the Dead with Dr. David Scare and Dr. Robert Price. We are taking your questions now. 1-800-385-SOLA 1-800-385-7652 And uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, two-minute uh, responses on, the, on both sides of these. Uh, the first question is for Dr. Price. Uh, this is Ahmed from Utah, and this is his question. I was wondering what an acceptable amount of historical proof he would need besides the hundreds, if not thousands, of corroborating accounts from that period of time still exist. All right, Dr. Price, two minutes. Well, uh, it, I think the thing that would at least persuade me that there was a historical Jesus would be any sort of surviving uh, correspondence, any letters, and we have a lot of letters from, from the ancient world, some found in garbage dumps and the like, papyri, with someone saying that they had seen Jesus and heard his teaching, or, or later on, uh, maybe something saying, you know, the darndest thing here in Jerusalem, uh, they're saying this man rose from the dead, something like that, an actual contemporary witness would go a long way, but we have nothing like that. Uh, there are not countless attestations of Jesus in the ancient world. In fact, it is almost certain, in my view, and that of many scholars, that the Josephus thing is, is not original to that text. But even if it were, uh, that's too late. Uh, you've just got someone writing decades later who was simply reflecting what Christians in his day were saying. The same is true of the Roman writer Tacitus. And none of the others make any kind of reference to uh, to, to a historical Jesus. Um, the, uh, the letter of Pliny the the Younger, if it is uh, authentic, simply refers to uh, the Christian God, Christ as to a God. The hymns are sung. 
uh, Suetonius refers to rioting among Jews in Rome at the instigation of a guy named Crestus in 40 AD. Yeah, this can hardly be Jesus. And there really is no uh, attestation. I'm not sure if, if it means a lot that there isn't, but the fact that we don't have it, uh, we're missing the evidence I would find convincing. Whereas everything else we have looks so much like Old Testament stories rewritten, snippets from Euripides and Homer, and uh, standard stuff from the dying and rising God myths that I just don't see why. I don't see what is left to take as historical attestation. So I, I'm far from the caller on this. I don't think there is any real evidence. All right. Thank you. And Dr. Scarry, your two-minute rebuttal. Yes, and that is, uh, you mentioned there are no letters. Well, in the ancient world, the uh, people who are the uh, reputed authors of the letters did not actually do the writing. Uh, these were uh, these were taken down as they spoke, and whether that was verbatim. Well, what you really have there in the New Testament is a variety of literatures, literature, presumably uh, by somebody by those who actually listened to Jesus. A very haunting phrase is in the Gospel of Matthew: "Every scribe who enrolls in the kingdom of heaven is like someone who brings out things old and new." That phrase "old and new" has always been perplexing, but it might have that idea that he deliberately. I certainly agree with you that he deliberately pictured Jesus as someone from the Old Testament. Now you want uh, you want some uh, deliberate proof and literature, and that is um, well. Um, Richard Bauckham wrote the book Jude and the Relatives of Jesus, and um, if you can't get proof in letters, you can get proof in relatives, and that uh, the brothers of Jesus were known to the church. Uh, the, one of the women who uh, come to the tomb is called the mother of of Joseph and James. And uh, Paul bases his argument for the re one of the uh, uh, references uh, for the resurrection on the appearance to James, who is the brother of Jesus. There are three James, and there is that James. And um, I'm not so sure that I am comfortable with the distinction between uh, Christian literature and secular literature, um, um, I think you. But that distinction, by the way, prejudges the argument uh, that uh, would you? Why would you expect references to a person like Jesus in uh, among those who uh, really were not too concerned about him? All right, Dr. Scam, I have to cut you off at Thank two you. minutes right there. Uh, all right, we're going to go to the phones. We have uh, Thomas calling from uh, Enid, Oklahoma. Uh, Thomas has uh, two questions. Uh, Thomas, can we get your question for Dr. Scare first? Certainly, no problem. Okay, go, um, go ahead. Dr. Scare, a uh, question for Dr. Scare. Upon what evidence do you maintain that the gospel accounts were written by eyewitnesses or their contemporaries with regard to the evidence described therein? document themselves and um, as for example in the gospel of John you have this, uh, on this you have this otherwise anonymous figure of the beloved disciple who seems to be privy uh, to a number of uh, conversations and um, in regard to the gospel of, of Matthew um, one uh, he, he includes himself in the in a very subtle way he includes himself in in the writing now, in, in, he calls himself in that reference to a scribe. Every reference to scribes in the New Testament is negative, except in two places. 
and they're both in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I would call Matthew a Catholic document because it comes, uh, it comes, it does not claim to have just one individual be- person behind it like you have in the other three Gospels. And that's how we do it. Now, Luke claims that um, he's not an eyewitness. He makes specific that he actually checked this out with the, uh, with the, with the eyewitnesses. And Mark has that unusual reference to the gentleman who loses his clothing at the arrest of Jesus. And um, I would consider these to be... Oh, and Mark also mentions things, for example, that where Jesus fed the 500 or the 5,000, the grass was green. There are other references which indicates that the person has participated or known of these events or spoken to people who have. Thank you, Thomas. All right, thank you. And then also, uh, Dr. Price, a two-minute rebuttal. Once again, green grass doesn't an eyewitness spell. That's just verisimilitude in a narrative. Uh, an awful lot of narratives must be true that uh, we didn't think were if that's enough to do it. Um, Mark having a guy run away naked, which is just as likely a reference to this passage in Amos, in that day a strong man will run away naked, this in no way comes close to being a claim for eyewitness authorship. Uh, Matthew has, uh, uh, he's combined two Markan characters, Levi the tax collector and Matthew the disciple, into a new conflation, Matthew the tax collector who used to be, uh, Matthew the disciple used to be a tax collector, this cannot be by Matthew, certainly wouldn't steal somebody else's resume and omit the Levi character. Uh, John's Gospel has is the only one that actually, well for one thing, the beloved disciple character doesn't appear in the same stories in other Gospels, uh, where you go into the tomb, it's only Peter that does in, in Luke, uh, but it's Peter and the beloved disciple in, uh, uh, in John. But as to him being a, an eyewitness, this is claimed twice in John, one in John 19, when it says the blood and water came out of the side of Jesus, and it says... Um, well, this is an, uh, he who saw it bears witness so that you two may believe, etc. Well, this is an interpolation, which you can tell by the redactional seam, that uh, just before that it says the Roman soldiers uh, were told to take the bodies down so they wouldn't be hanging up there during the, the Sabbath. So the first two guys were alive, and they broke their legs to hasten death. But they determined that Jesus was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. And then it says, to make sure that he was dead, they stabbed him in the side. Wait a minute, I thought we just heard that they knew he was dead. Uh, and, and now they're, they don't know, and they're trying to prove it. It's an interpolation. And the other one, the thing about this, uh, the, that disciple is the one who wrote these things down, and we know his testimony is true, that's chapter 21, which is an appendix to the gospel. It's not even part of the original writing. All right, and, Dr. Price, uh, I'll Mark, cut, cut you off right there okay. in two minutes. But Thomas has another question for Dr. Price. Thomas, what's your second question? Sure, and real quick, I just want to thank both of you for your answers. Um, my second question for Dr. Price is, who do you believe uh, personally wrote the Gospels, and what was their motivation behind it? Uh, their statements of faith, uh, people continue to write Gospels with what they believe Jesus should have, would have, and must have said. Uh, I don't think there's any way to know, because the Gospels were originally, like the Epistle of the Hebrews, anonymous. Uh, it was only uh, in the second, the late second century that people put names to them, which assumes collections of Gospels. Originally, as far as we can tell, if a church had only one Gospel, they would say, now a reading from the Gospel. You had to uh, indicate, uh, according to this or that name, one 
once you had more than one. So it appears that uh, nobody signed them. Don't know why. Paul's epistles have na- uh, the name on it, but these do not. So there's just no way to guess. Uh, and yeah, they wrote them, to, of course, to proclaim faith. Okay. All right. Dr. Scare, a two-minute rebuttal. Uh, yeah, so that is, uh, of course, there is, of course, the Gospels are, are statements of faith. Uh, as, in fact, most most documents fit into that category. And the um, the other question is, now, when there comes to indication that these people may have been eyewitnesses, all of a sudden we we use the word interpolation. Uh, that seems to be a a very convenient way for getting material. Um, that doesn't fit our argument out of the text. And then the idea that Matthew has conflated two persons from Mark again assumes that Mark is the first gospel. And um, there's, I think this, uh, I, there is no reason, I think, the, I think the reasons that call for Mark and priority on which many of these arguments are based, including that there is no resurrection appearance in Mark and that Mark is the earliest gospel, I think these, I think these views have to be challenged, because uh, it is based essentially on that um, the fall of Jerusalem is recorded as an historical event in the Gospels, and uh, I think there, I think if we would actually look at what it said about the fall of Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew, that it's not speaking about the fall of Jerusalem, but it is uh, speaking about the death of Jesus Himself. For where the corpse is, there the Roman eagles gather. For immediately after the great affliction of these days, the sun will be the sun will be darkened. Now, so far as putting dates on, not all scholars agree that these these uh, names were added uh, later on. Um, uh, they, some argue that they can be or they can put have been put on as early as the first quarter of the sec of the second century when they began to have more Gospels. And I think that is a reference to their authenticity, that they don't have names. Because the Gnostic Gospels, about which there have always been questions, the writer is placed up front. And um, there is only one Gospel, and that Gospel originates in Jesus. And by not including their uh, their names, they did not want to be presumptuous with the idea that it came from them. Thank you. All right, thank you. And we're going to... Go to the phones once again. But first, the number, if you want to call in, is 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-SOLA. And we're going to go to Will, who is calling from Boulder, Colorado. Will uh, has a question for Dr. Scare. Will, what's your question? Hi, thank you. Um, uh, Given that the ancient uh, historiographies of the period are full of miracles and wonders, uh, even if we accept the standard dating of the Gospels, being, say, between, I don't know, 65 and 90 CE, or even a little earlier, um, how can we infer from that that the, the miraculous resurrection of Jesus was the most probable historical reconstruction? And also, how can we assume that the Gospels have an oral tradition at their core rather than just being literary works? And I'll listen off the podcast. Thank you. Well, you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of uh, information there, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to take the last one first. And if you want to intervene, that would be okay. And that is, how can we assume that oral tradition uh, comes before a, a literary tradition? Well, uh, if we can go to the argument of the business of the majority of the scholars by speaking of oral tradition, uh, and the old uh, doctrine of inspiration did not handle this, and that is. Um, 
um, what what existed between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the writing of the first gospel, but in very simple language, that's what we that's what we call the oral tradition, and that the writers uh, used this uh, used this material in formulating their gospels. Now comes the question, and this is. Uh, without there being some type of oral tradition that preceded the writing of the documents, then we're left with this option, unless someone has another option, is that they, uh, they, they each one created this out of, uh, created it out of their out of their head. And so you would have four creative uh, thinkers on this particular point of view. And maybe later we can even address the question why there are differences, in each one. There is an editorial redactional motif in each one of these. Now when you say what is the absolute certainty that we have from the writings that the miracles, especially the resurrection took place? Well uh, Dr. Price has brought into the argument the word inerrancy. Well that's not necessarily a very big issue with me. What's an issue with me is that I assume that when I read a document it is true unless there is evidence within the document itself, like the tabloids that they sell at the checkout counters, that uh, some, of, some of this is, is, is not true. And so we have to, at least I do, I take, I take a document at its, at, its face, at its face value unless there is reason not to. When you mention Cyclops, uh, you're mentioning someone who happens in an ahistorical sense but uh, the writers at least want us to believe that this happened within ordinary history. And that is, Matthew makes it very clear. He brings in Herod and he brings in Antipas. He brings in Pontius Pilate. And of course, Luke has a much longer extension of historical references. Thank you. All right. Uh, Dr. Price for a two-minute rebuttal. Uh, well, uh, contemporary novels of the period also have uh actual people just as they do today it doesn't mean uh, they really did what they're said to have done and the uh, Herod the Great thing appears to be uh, so parallel to Josephus's Moses nativity with Herod taking the role of Pharaoh uh, as Josephus not as Exodus puts it that uh, it seems to me you've got to uh, ask which is more probable literary borrowing or this uh, massacre unattested by other sources that do catalog Herod, Herod's, Herod's known atrocities not this one Pontius Pilate depicted as Ben over backwards to free Jesus and yielding to the demand of a bunch of hooligans in an, in an alley in front of him uh, when he, he doesn't care about the repercussions of releasing Barabbas, a known insurrectionist. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin meeting on Passover Eve and a capital trial, none of these things indicate that the writers had any real idea of, of the history. There were even ancient uh, Jewish and Christian estimates of the death of Jesus that placed it in the reign of Claude or a hundred years earlier in the time of Alexander Genius. Uh, it's, uh, it just seems to me the uh, supposed historical connections are extremely tenuous and, and very likely fictive. Uh, and the, uh, the uh, idea that, um, that the uh, Gospels would have had to have been invented independently if Jesus would have been by four different people. Uh, this is, again, source criticism. It seems clear to me that uh, uh, that Mark is the first gospel, uh, that the others used him, and we don't have uh, independent sources. And where they differ, it makes eminent sense, especially because of the at-large at redactional interest traceable in each one, that each has fabricated what the other doesn't have. Uh, there's no problem with that. And uh, to, to just take 
take for granted what any narrative says. This simply isn't history. And really, it's made nonsense of by the principle of analogy. I like that thing with the tabloids. It's the reason to suspect such a thing is that it has no uh, any match and no analogy in modern experience. I like to say if a guy goes home, turns on the TV, and sees Godzilla stomping Tokyo, his first reaction is not, oh, I've got CNN. No, he knows he's got the sci-fi channel because there's no contemporary experience of radioactive dinosaurs destroying cities, but there are plenty of cheap sci-fi flicks. Which is this more like? And as the questioner says, given that the so-called histories contained outlandish miracles, and this does, what does it look like? The historian must say it's probably legend, too. We don't have a time machine. We can't go back there and videotape what happened. We can only deal in probabilities, but if we're going to do that, this is probably myth and legend. All right, 1-800-385-SOLA is the number, 1-800-385-7652. We have a little bit of time before our next commercial break. We can get uh, probably another caller or two in. If you call right now, 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652. Also on tabletalkradio.org is our merchandise shop. You've, you've all wanted a nice tabletalk radio mug or doggy dish or something uh, to give to your in-laws, you can get that at tabletalkradio.org. Uh, all the all the merchandise that you wanted to give, maybe your enemy or anything like that, is available at tabletalkradio.org. Then click the merchandise or the store tab uh, to look at our merchandise shop. Uh, also, if you are uh, needing someone to analyze your church signs or theological bumper stickers, we do that on the program too. Uh, and we get those uh, through the email system, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Questions at tabletalkradio.org, where after the program you can call in with your uh, your bumper stickers and church signs to our response line, 1-800-385-SOLA. Uh, if you were signed up for our text message alert system, you got a re- text message reminder of today's program, uh, and that was... You can do that by texting the number Table Talk altogether one word through your cell phone to the number 69302. 69302, Table Talk Radio, um, text message alerts, and just text message the word Table Talk altogether one word uh, to 69302. The phone number for tonight's uh, call in program is 1 800 385 SOLA, 1 800 385 76 You're listening to Table Talk Radio, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? with Dr. David Scare and also Dr. Robert Price. Uh, We'll wait just another moment for another call, 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7652 is the number. And uh, we'll uh, get Dr. Price or Dr. Scare to get the question uh, that you have, and we're going to go to the phone lines to Jason from Houston has a question for Dr. Price. Yes, my question for Dr. Price is just because the uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is a creed, does that not make it any more fact? Thank you for the call. Not make it any more what? Of a, of a fact. Well, it, it seems to me it's not a presentation of evidence of anything. He says, this is what we preach, that uh, the died according to the scripture and so on, rose from the dead, seen by this and that. This is not presented as evidence for a creed. This is the, the 
the creed. It's it's not like corroboration of anything. It's like saying the Nicene Creed is evidence about Jesus. The whole question is, is this true? And no evidence is presented there. It's just a statement of affirmations. In fact, it's uh, several of them combined, I think. But uh, it, it simply isn't evidence any more than the Apostles' Creed is evidence for the Apostles' Creed. It's a statement of beliefs. Dr. Scarry, rebuttal? Yes, thank you. And that is, I totally agree that it is a creed and that Paul is not the originator of the creed, but this is a creed that was used in Jerusalem. And its formulation certainly seems to match uh, the three predictions of the death and uh, resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the center of our apostles and our, and our Nicene Creed. Now, um, this is, I believe, a very complex piece of literature um, literature at this point, because first of all, he says it happens according to the scriptures, kata tas grafas. Um, he is referring to documents which they have, which they know, and which they can get their hands on. I'll come on that later. But then you have that strange thing, is that he does present the evidence, and the evidence is Cephas, and then he says the 12, which is the technical term for 11, even though some apostle, James, is dead perhaps at this time, and then to more than 500 witnesses, and then on the next level he has James, all the apostles, that's missionaries, and then he includes himself, in which um, he, uh, once he proves he advances his case by saying that he's not the origin of this. He then advances his case by, this is something which can be learned from the scriptures, and I just don't believe that's the Old Testament scriptures, and then he lists people. Now, if these people are not available to the Corinthians, uh, list, uh, listing witnesses who do not exist or who, which are otherwise unavailable to the Corinthians, you would destroy your case entirely. And there is good evidence that the Corinthians knew Peter because there's a certain sect or cult which has grown up. And even the 500, those mysterious 500 brothers, and I do not know how Paul is using that, but the, um, the Corinthians know these people because they, uh, it's mentioned that some of them are living and that some are dead, most of whom are, some of whom have fallen asleep. So uh, that this is simply the presentation of a, litur a liturgical act of the congregation, of which I totally agree it is, but it's, not, it's more than that. There's an historical evidence. And then Paul uh, uh, brings himself, and if you want to use historical evidence, he points to his own misery, I guess that is. I guess the people knew that of that particular situation of what he had gone through, but that's not part of the argument. So I'm not going to go down that street. All right, thank you, Dr. Scare. Let's go to the phones. We'll go to Mark calling from Wiley, Texas. A question for Dr. Price. Hi, Dr. Price. I didn't hear the last question, so I don't exactly know what it was. But I just heard Dr. Scare answer with First uh, Corinthians 15, which is what my question revolves around. And my question is whether you think that the Apostle Paul uh, had read the Gospels, and if so, where do you think that he got his, uh, this evidence, um, this Gospel, that Christ died and was raised again on the third day? Well, I don't think it's actually a Pauline text, and one reason I don't think it is, and by the way, interpolations are common. Everybody admits that, uh, for instance, the angel disturbing the waters at Bethsaida, the woman taken in adultery, and the long ending of Mark are uh, interpolations because we are lucky enough to have 
copies that don't have that in there. The earliest ones don't. We have no copies of any New Testament writing at all for a hundred years or so there. So you have to judge on the internal uh, indicators where there might have, whether there might have been an interpolation. I think this is one. Many scholars do. Well, uh, the, the the one of the big problems for thinking Paul wrote this is in Galatians he's quite insistent that no human being gave him his gospel, but this portrays him as Acts does as an obedient lackey of the Jerusalem apostles uh, who gave him this content which he preached and uh, by which they stand etc now if that if that's the gospel he preached and they believed who's lying is it the Paul of Galatians or the Paul of first Corinthians it's not by the same guy uh, and uh, one can come up with harmonizations though I have never heard one I've simply heard people insist that oh no there's no contradiction uh, I don't quite know how that can be so and have never heard it explained but that's one of the several reasons I think this is not part of the same letter, and that there's several other things in First Corinthians that originally weren't there. And uh, the historical Paul could not have read the Gospels; they're written much later than than him. All right, uh, Doctor Scare, a two-minute rebuttal. Yeah, yes, well, uh, your conc- the concluding statement: he could not have read the Gospels. I think that is o- that is much op- that is much open to debate. And be simply because of this, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he doesn't simply mean, in a Lutheran sense, oh, that God, uh, that Christ died for sins and now, and now you're saved by his resurrection. What was, what was he doing there for several, for several months or maybe a year and a half? He, in some way, he was telling them about the entire life of Jesus. And apparently he knew certain things because uh, if you look at Romans chapter 1, he speaks about uh, Jesus being descended from David, which certainly seems to indicate that he that he had more information than what he lets on. In um, uh, when he lets on, when, when he meant the gospel, he meant the totality of what Jesus did and said, and not just saying that Christ died for sins. Now, for that situation between the uh, the contradiction between Galatians and um, uh, the Galatians and Corinthians, which is certainly a point um, which is which is deba- which is debatable, and that is, I think is a uh, I think that Paul knew the facts of if we take uh, Acts seriously, uh, he knew the facts of the life of Jesus when he said Saul, Saul, why persecuted me? It was not simply the persecution of the church. Um, he was actually persecuting Jesus. And if the, uh, if the stoning of Stephen takes a place within a year and a half or two years, he was fully aware of the facts of Christianity uh, before he was converted. And that because he knew the very facts of Christianity was the reasons that he, that he persecuted it. And he's simply saying in Galatians that um, uh, he did, uh, what he's saying in Galatians is that he came to an awareness of what this was, of what of what these facts was. He saw these things in a different light than he did before. I think he was fully versed in Christianity, fully versed in Christianity before he uh, was converted. All right, thank you. One final question. We'll go to Chris from Indianapolis. Chris has a question for Dr. Price. Yeah, uh, I uh, I found Dr. Price's answers regarding 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and just dismissing it because it contains creedal, a creedal formula to actually ignore one of the most important pieces of the document itself. 1 Corinthians is actually one of the earliest uh, Christian documents written in either 52 to 54 A.D. And it in that creed that he so quickly dismisses, just because it's creedal, Paul says... 
He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the Twelve. But part, the last part of it in verse 8 says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle, because I persecuted the Church of God. Uh, Dr. Price, would you take, uh, take up the topic of discussing Paul's conversion to Christianity and how that came about? Um, I think it's, uh, it's tantamount to Hitler becoming a Jew, uh, somebody who was murdering Christians, and here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he provides an eyewitness testimony to the fact that he had seen the risen Lord. How do you, uh, how do you deal with that uh, portion of 1 Corinthians 15? Well, for one thing, there are various uh, indicators, such as the uh, seeming conflation of a pro-James and a pro-Cephas uh, creed, mini-creed, uh, one leader of the Apostles, one leader of the Twelve, same thing probably, which one is the leader? Well, this rivalry finally was papered over, and this is use of this text is years after that. The very idea of a creed does not fit with the early formative stage of a church in which a missionary pioneer is working. It, it's uh, always a sign of uh, the institutionalization of a religion at a later stage. Uh, but uh, as in terms of Paul's conversion, uh, we don't know much about that. Uh, the three versions in Acts, which agree substantially, not completely, seem to me obviously to be based on the miraculous conversion story of King Pentheus and Euripides the Bacchae, and the uh, miraculous conversion of Heliodorus in Second Maccabees chapter three. I invite anyone to read them; they were already uh, well uh, available by the time Acts was written. Uh, no such uh, Damascus Road experience is ever even hinted at in, in any of the Pauline epistles. Uh, the uh, revelation mentioned in Galatians, literally, God revealed his son in me, not necessarily to me, though you could translate it that way. Uh, I know you'll scoff at this because of the refusal of people to believe that there were interpolations during the period for which we have no manuscripts, but uh, scholars like J.C. O'Neill have given good reasons for saying these persecutor passages are later additions or belong to pseudonymous works like the pastorals. And uh, in Romans 16, he actually actually mentions uh, Andronicus and Junius, kinsmen of his, who were uh, in Christ before him. That uh, suggests a very different approach, that maybe he wasn't converted any more than modern studies suggest Constantine was. That, too, appears to be a kind of a later uh, hagiographic uh, embellishment. So I'm not so sure that we, we have any real evidence for a Pauline conversion. All right, uh, and Dr. Scare, a two-minute rebuttal. Yes, I'd, I'd like to speak to this uh, reference in Galatians chapter uh, 1, verse 12, where he says he was through the revelation of Apocalypseos of Jesus Christ. Now, that word does not necessarily mean involve some kind of vision, because it is used in the gospel when Jesus speaks to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father in heaven. It means coming to coming to an awareness. So uh, it, I do not look upon the conversion of St. Paul as involving some kind of tra uh, transmission of information on the Damascus Road or following. Now, uh, I don't know how this got into this discussion, but it certainly is worthwhile, and that is do we have different parties in the church? Um, and obviously it is in Corinthians. Some say they're of Paul, some say of Christ, and but um, whatever divisions they had, they somehow 
work together. Because in Galatians, Paul said that he went up and he spoke to the pillars of the church, which were James, who was now in the front position, who was called the brother of the Lord. Very unlikely that's his cousin, because in that world, with all those children, there have been a lot of cousins. This person um, shared a special relationship with Jesus. I would say he was a uterine brother. James, Peter, uh, Peter, and John. Um, in regard to interpolations, um, unless there is manuscript evidence that there are interpolations, I think we should refrain from speaking of that because what happens when the evidence gets uncomfortable, all of a sudden we have an interpolation. All right, don't go away. After this, we're going to hear final arguments, closing arguments from both Dr. Price and Dr. Scare. You are listening to Table Talk Radio, and we're going to be right back to close out the debate uh, this Sunday night, May 15th. We'll be right back after this. For Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Theologians ask the question, what do we think of God? This is a good question to ask, and we look to the scriptures to, to determine what we think, to, to get our thoughts all in line. What do we think of God? But here's a more important question. What does God think of us? What does he think of you and your family and, and your life? God, after all, knows everything that you do and more. He knows everything that you say, everything that you think. What then could he possibly think about you? If we look around at the circumstances of our life, we might think that God doesn't think that much of us after all. Maybe he's even ignoring us, that, uh, the, 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 that we don't even cross his mind. Or maybe, with the horrifying thought of our own sinfulness in mind, maybe God would hate us. He certainly has the right to. And with the law, we know that his wrath is revealed against ungodliness of every kind. But when we turn to the scriptures, we see the marvelous good news that the things God thinks of us are good things. The way he thinks about us is as a dear father thinks of his beloved little children. The way that God thinks of us is through the death of Jesus. He thinks of us as holy and perfect and righteous and absolutely and completely sinless. That's what God thinks of us. That's what God thinks of you. If you doubt that, fix your eyes on the cross. There you learn what God thinks of you, how much he loves you, what he's willing to give to have you as his own. There, with his arms outstretched, bleeding and dying for your sin, there you know that God loves me. And that is our greatest comfort and peace. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. You've been listening to a live radio debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? with uh, Dr. David Scare and Dr. Robert Price. It's time for the closing arguments for each. We'll start with Dr. Price. Ten minutes for a closing argument. 
If one approached these uh, stories and creeds and so on embedded in the New Testament uh, as if they were written by the Buddhists or the Mithraeus, and one had no urgent faith uh, uh, commitment to them, I think uh, the uh, judgment of many scholars would be altogether different. Uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, uh, acquaintance with some of the work of apologists has uh, just made me disillusioned, not so much with uh, Christianity, but with those who defend it. And uh, the uh, I, I think uh, I love religion. I'm not one of these religion bashers. I love Christianity. Uh, but I do not think these stories are true. I once did, but uh, historical methodology and scrutiny have convinced me over the years, albeit reluctantly, that it just isn't true. Uh, it, it call the result nostalgia, maybe it is, uh, but I, I have no ill will against Christianity, but uh, there just isn't, uh, in my view, the, the credentials or the evidence for it. And uh, this, uh, just because I concluded that is no evidence, everyone should take their own uh, uh, their own um, approach to it. I just uh, urge people to be intellectually honest, uh, to... Uh, uh, not to accept any harmonization or any convenient interpretation that only looks good to them because it would get them out of a tight spot. And uh, otherwise, I think Christianity, which venerates truth, is is ill-served. I agree with Albert Schweitzer that I want nothing to do with the the uh, crooked thinking of Christian apologetics. All right, Dr. Scare, 10 minutes for a closing argument. It almost seems... Uh uh, Dr. Price, that uh, because uh, we have uh, worded the question this way, uh, did the resur uh, what, what about the historicity of um, the resurrection, that we have introduced the apologetic motif. And um, undoubtedly, perhaps from uh, my performance and presentation tonight, it will become evidence that I have never participated in this in, in a debate, in a formal debate at all. Uh, and therefore, I appreciate uh, my participating this with you. And I certainly don't consider myself an apologist, and I do not believe that the apologists that uh, that the apologists contribute to the construction of faith, even though I do belong to a faith community. I'm certainly not basing the argument on that. And um, and then when it comes to the question of being an apologist, one thing that strikes me is that if any defender of Christianity is an apologist. And uh, that characteristic would be uh, certainly derived from the Gospels themselves, especially uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which who tackles the question of whether the virgin birth really could be explained by some other arrangement, by some illegitimate arrangement. He, he, take, he takes that head on. And he also, in his resurrection account, is an extremely apologetic. Now, there are a number of... Uh, and I totally agree with you so far as the harmonization is concerned. Um, I think the um, uh, there was I can understand why harmonization came into the church as early as the second century, because we have four gospels. It would be better to be like uh, the Mormons and have only one book of authority. I understand in the Quran there are some differences, so I don't want to bring that up simply because I couldn't handle it. But this is. Um, this is an issue that has to be addressed, and I don't think harmonization is right. And when I graduated from the seminary, the, the publishing house of our church party gave us a harmonization of the Gospels. That's absolutely wrong. Uh, that's an offense. If you believe in inspiration, it's offense against the Holy Ghost, and it's against the offense of the writers. 
and that each gospel writer has to be, in regard to the resurrection, has to be appreciated for what he's doing. It certainly seems as if Luke, while he's very much interested in the historical question, it's very strange that he makes the first recognition of Jesus uh, in the recognition of the Eucharist, which may be a sign that now we are not to look for the appearances of Jesus. And John's gospel concludes with, it attaches many things to the resurrection narrative. It's, not, it's, it's never simply as fact. And John, of course, the question is, who is going to be the leader of the church? Now, there are a number of assumptions in which scholars base, which I simply do not think they stand. And that is, for example, uh, the, the, one of the major assumptions is that Mark, Mark is first, and that's come up several times during our discussion tonight, and, um, and that Matthew and Luke then embellished it, changed it around, and so forth. But one of the strange things, when, you, when, pericope, when Mark is placed against pericopes from other Gospels, in a very strange way, uh, the Gospel of Mark is longer uh, than its parallels in, in, in Matthew or Luke. And one thing that strikes me is that if Matthew knew Mark, and Matthew, by the way, is the Catholic gospel because it has the institution of the Lord's Supper and the Trinitarian formula for baptism, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Matthew only has, are you able to drink the cup which I am able to drink? And then Mark expands that to include and are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? Yes, we are able to be baptized with the baptism with which you are going to be baptized. That word baptism shows up six times in Mark, and somehow Matthew manages to skip it, when it really would have been a magnificent anticipation and prelude to his own document, to his own doctrine on baptism, uh, to his own doctrine. And then you know, I really enjoy your and uh, uh, your great breadth, your breadth of knowledge, insofar as the literature of that time is concerned, uh, the mythological literature and Josephus, and so forth. Uh, your argument assumes that the writers, the uh, the biblical writers, the gospel writers, rather had the same, that same breadth of knowledge that you're demonstrating now and that they were able to put this all together. I am utterly convinced with you on this part of the argument that the person of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is presented according to certain figures. It's like it's telling the story all over again. So in, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in some way uh, reflects, um, uh, reflects Sinai. Now, this has come up several times in many debates, and that is that the um, slaughter of the holy innocents in Bethlehem is unattested. Okay. On the scale of probability to uh, improbability, where does that go? Well, let's see. He killed his own wife, and he killed his own son, and he managed to kill a host of Jewish people uh, at his, uh, to arrange to have them killed when he died so there would be people weeping. So it certainly fits the character. Now, Maybe there were only two or three babies in, um, I mean, that's, a, that's hard as it is. Uh, the uh, artists sometimes show a multitude. That may not necessarily be true, but it fits them. And then you say Pilate being intimidated by a bunch of hooligans. Well, 
I suppose we could find enough cases in own our, our own American political life where our governors and presidents have also been intimidated. Now, what's so amazing? Why should it be so amazing that the Jewish leaders uh, broke the Passover law by, uh, and they did by going to see Pilate on the Sabbath, which is called the Great Sabbath, by the way, which is an unusual, which is never found any place else. That one. Uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, on the Sabbath. Now, what's so amazing about this? Because if the other parts of the story can be assumed uh, that they were able to uh, break all kinds of legal laws in giving, the, uh, in giving Jesus a trial, what would bother them? And we're assuming that these Jewish leaders obeyed the Jewish strictures right down to the letter. That is a huge. That is a huge. That is a huge assumption, and uh, uh, I think they were acting so totally within their their character their characteristics, uh, the characteristics of uh, who they were. Well, I want to conclude for thanking you very much for having this discussion with me. I hope I can get to meet you personally sometime. I look forward to, and I thank um, Evan Gagline for this opportunity. You bet. Great. Yeah, thank you for being on the on the broadcast, Dr. Price, and uh, appreciate all the, all the time you put into this and uh, for being on the show tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, and great to meet the both of you, albeit over the phone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you, Dr. Scare, for uh, spending some time uh, here in my here in my uh, dorm room uh, and Table Talk Radio. It's really classy up here. <laughs> well, you've just heard both sides of the argument. Did Jesus rise from the dead? But your consideration of this topic shouldn't end at the closing theme music. Continue to look into the topic yourselves. Read the text, do the research, and see which side the evidence is more compelling. But that is just the evidence. This show hasn't even broached the topic as to whether what the theological significance of Christ's resurrection is. If Paul was right... Christ did not raise from the dead, then we are of all men to be pitied. Because if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, there is still no solution to the problem of death. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, death has not been defeated. And for all those times you and I, out of selfishness, hurt others and sin against God, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then those sins are ours to bear and we will certainly bear them to the grave. So, that doesn't make it true. But if the fact of the resurrection happened, if, if that was a, a, a historic event, then there is an answer for death. Uh, death has been defeated. There is an answer for sin, the, the forgiveness of sins, that Christ has atoned for the sins of the whole world. And because Christ has risen, this event proves the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation we've been given as a free gift by God through Christ. I thank you for listening to this special edition of Table Talk Radio, and I thank Aaron for spreading the calls, and for everyone listening, this podcast will be available on our website, tabletalkradio.org, for you to listen to again in the future. Thanks again for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to this special live broadcast of Table Talk Radio. 
For more information or to listen to this broadcast again, visit our website, tabletalkradio.org. 